and we are now live. Thank you for joining me today, Paulie. All right, man. It's a pleasure. Good to, good to see you again. Yes, uh, it's been a while. Um, just for those listening, obviously, uh, through audio, we do also have video on YouTube, uh, which is at the JB Podcast, so feel free to check that out. Um, and Paulie's just uh, sort of released a book, and I'd like you to just tell me about your, your new book. Oh, very cool, man. Love talking about it. So uh, the, the new book is titled uh, Deliberate Coaching, A Toolbox for Accelerating Performance. And uh, really, it's about how to get people to perform in a way that's going to create sustainability. So um, we know uh, that um, uh, what, what we did was that if you look up coaching in the dictionary, um, you'll see a lot of very common terms, uh, and, but nobody kind of quite defines it well. So uh, because I have a background in the behavioral sciences, um, we've defined it using the science. So what we say is that training, because if I ask you right now what the difference between training and coaching, you'd have to think about it a little bit. Like really what is the difference between a trainer and a coach or specifically training and coaching? So training really has to do with skill acquisition, teaching somebody a skill, right? Getting them to perform that skill. And coaching, right? The function of coaching is to help transfer that skill into the natural environment. So if I'm training you as a fighter, I might be able to teach you how to slip or roll from a punch, and you can do that outside of the cage. Now I've got to get that skill to work in the cage. And if it's a new skill for you, and I throw you in there and you start taking a beating, you're going to fall back on the old habits. So the book takes the reader through a very deliberate approach or deliberate coaching for developing skills and helping those skills to transfer. And there's a whole science behind that. So that's the premise of it. Tell me um, a little bit about your background in education as well. Yeah, so um, um, you know, I, I I've actually uh, worked in education since 1995. Um, you know, I was going into different schools, and I was picked up uh, by a school as a, a therapist. And in those days, I was uh, in the uh, the mental health field. So um, I I had my master's in social work, and uh, somebody said, hey, if you if you go around the, the corner and uh, get this certification, this training, you can get paid, you know, 50 bucks an hour. I'm like, wow, you know, cause I was broke. I'm like, that sounds pretty cool. And it was on behavior. I'm like, ah, I like behavior. Let me go, let me go sit in and find out more about it. But man, it changed my life. Uh, it was applied behavior analysis that I was being trained in. And it was like, I was walking through life with a foggy lens on until I find out about this actually very, very misunderstood science. Um, so when I learned it and I started to see things a little bit differently, um, I started to behave differently. So like the, the kids I was working with, uh, you know, trouble kids, uh, kids that were duly diagnosed, they had a mental health diagnosis and they might've been doing some sort of drugs or something like that. And, uh, as I started to learn more about the science, I started to apply it in my work and I was seeing some pretty important outcomes. And I started to reflect on my own behavior and how my behavior was impacting those, the people around me and my clients. Um, I was hired as a behavior analyst in a county in Florida, and um, I was actually serving some kids and working with teachers in classrooms. And uh, the assistant superintendent, after school had failed, the school had gone done very poorly. And one year, it went from a grade A down to an F. It was like the kids had taken over the school. I remember they said, you know, hey, do you think you can get in there and help them? And I said, no, what the heck am I going to do? You know, it was because it was crazy. Um, but I thought, all right, I'll give it a shot. You know, we're going to need a team of folks. And um, I thought, well, let me refer back to the literature on the science, and I'm, I'm sure somebody must be doing something using it, and uh, I couldn't find anything in particular, but somebody said there's this book by Aubrey Daniels, Dr. Aubrey Daniels, it's called Bringing Out the Best in People, and what it was was organizational behavior management, which is the science of human behavior as applied to groups and organizations. Applied behavior analysis is typically a single subject design, so it's like working with say if i was working with one of my fighters and so for our listeners i'm also a professional mixed martial arts coach and i i also apply the science to training my fighters but rather than working with one person it allows you to work with and help improve the performance of groups of people um so i started applying some of these basic concepts to the schools and uh man i was we were getting really important outcomes and uh then i replicated it worked with some principals to replicate it um, ended up writing, uh, now this is my second book, uh, about this science of organizational behavior management as applied in schools. And nobody had written books about that up until this point. So it's seminal in education, but organizational behavior management has actually been around for a while. But if everybody understood these premises, the world would be 
a better place. I honestly, God, and I say this with all sincerity, I believe it holds the key to improving education. There's actually something called, um, um, and I didn't write this in my book. I wish I would have stumbled across it before, but COBIS, Comprehensive Applied Behavior Analysis Systems. And it's about how to improve student performance. And what they did was they linked a professor, what the professors were doing, what was going on in higher education, to what the school leaders were doing, to what the teachers were doing, to even what the parents were doing. And the outcomes, JB, were incredible. They're getting four to seven times improvement in student achievement. Four to seven times. Can you imagine that? I forget, like, the United States, and I, I could, you know, don't quote me on this because I might be misquoting it, but I think we did, they just put out, like, $25 billion in grants trying to find out how we can educate people the best. And you don't need to do that. We already have the answer. It's rooted in the science of human behavior, but people have a very warped distortion of what it is they think about like skinner and the the rats and the pigeons and thinking they got it all wrong skinner skinner founded radical behaviorism right and radical behaviorism says that we do consider your private events your thoughts and your feelings are very important people think that it's just about behavior and of course we recognize that behavior is most important because it's measurable you can see it and what you do impacts outcomes right or what you don't do so um, understanding those principles is really the key to improving life and improving performance, uh, helping people become happier, helping them perform independently, helping them to reach their goals. It really holds the key to it. Nice. So how does your book um, like differ from, from other coaching books? Yeah. So um, uh, well, I'll, I'll say fundamentally, our book is rooted in the science of human behavior. So it's not like a flavor of the, you know, coaching strategies book and actually it's coaching well i'm going to use it synonymous with leadership because leaders you know they have to coach somebody you know it might be the people just right under them um so uh really it gives a very scientific look and written in layman's terms easy to follow terms um that regardless of whatever coaching because there's a lot of different coaching books out there there's a lot of different leadership approaches out there but this science is at the root of all of those books. So you can literally use these principles and continue along the path that you're doing, but the, to but begin to get more precise with what you're doing and also understand more of your behavior and what you're doing that works and why it works, and when it works, why it works, and also when something's not working. So if you can understand those things, when something's not working, you can readjust because a lot of people tend to just use their approach with everybody. And that you cannot do the same thing for everybody, but you can use the same scientific principles to understand why something's going on. For example, if you weren't performing at work very well, there's a reason. It's going to come down to two things. It's either a can't do versus a don't do or won't do. Uh, skill deficit versus will deficit. So you have to first be able to diagnose that to understand what approach you're going to take because the intervention for that is going to be far different for each one, whether it's skill deficit or performance deficit. So understanding that first and foremost, and then understanding how to develop skills, and then understanding how to uh, accelerate that performance and get those skills to stick in the natural environment, whatever work environment you're performing in. How has the like science changed from sort of 1995 to, to now? Is it um, like our understanding of things and, and understanding how people work and their behavior? Has there been like loads of change or... Has it been kind of like we already knew this back then um, and now suddenly a lot more people are awake to it. So we're understanding the field more and yeah. dealing with it more. I, I, yeah, I love that question. So uh, uh, there's a ton of research behind the science, right? ton of research, 100 years uh, of behavior uh, research and then. 50 plus years uh, linked to specifically what we're doing with applied behavior analysis. And it's real research. It's not that it's real, the empirical evidence, it's powerful. So I, frankly, it's not that it's changed much, which changes people like me being able to disseminate because what the science has not done, or let's say the scientists, um, they haven't been great disseminators, right? Because you have like real scientists in the field and they don't necessarily, if you come across something that's kind of sciencey, they don't necessarily communicate well, you know, I mean, they're very focused, you know, and they're, but we have to make things palatable to people. And this is what I felt like Dr. Aubrey Daniels did with his book or uh, uh, bring out the best in people. He brought the science to the everyday person to make it understandable. And I feel like that is going on 
more now because you can't force people in the science, but you can use the science to reinforce them into it. Like do something, use the principles and then say, by the way, what you just did there was applied the science of human behavior. And if they use that and they see it works for them, well, we know that they're going to want to do that again. That's what the science tells us. Um, so, uh, I think it's just more, it's being disseminated more. And of course there have been some changes. There's actually something, uh, that, um, uh, and maybe we'll talk more about this later, but there, there's something called acceptance commitment therapy. I actually, I'm looking at the book. It's right next to me. I've written about that. Uh, I have an article, uh, called fight science, uh, using action to, uh, overcome fear and anxiety because fear and anxiety is an important thing for fighters to overcome. But how do you do it? Well, there's applications of the science for helping people to overcome that. And this is where we're saying that we're not just about rats and pigeons and all that stuff. You know, that was fundamental to learning about the science. But we are applying the science to help people experience better outcomes, right? And we do think about those private events. Your private events are essentially behavior that you are the observer of, right? So there are different things to do. But the main thing is that we want to get people to behave in certain ways that lead to better outcomes for them and be better observers of their own behavior and the impact of their behavior on the environment what do you do that leads you to what you value and what do you do that leads you away from what you value and what inner thoughts kind of show up that that trigger those behaviors so to speak does that that make sense yeah do you ever struggle to um say if we use like all humans for example our behavior there's always an underlying reason behind that so uh like you said earlier how i act at work maybe something's gone on at home and that's why I'm acting a certain way at work. Do you ever, how do you like overcome those boundaries where people don't necessarily want to tell you what's going on at, at home? How do you kind of try and break that down? Yeah. I mean, it's hard, you know, like uh, the thing is that we, we know I'm going to, I'm going to break it down to two things and this might be hard for people to digest, but the science tells us this and I'll, I'll explain it. All behavior, unless it's a reflex, all behavior, everything you do occurs for two reasons to get something or to get away from something. And that is it. And that is all. And people are thinking, well, I do this because of that. And you do. Okay. So let me explain it a little bit deeper. And this is where like, you know, hopefully I can disseminate more, help people understand. So I want you to think about the infant child that's been, you know, maybe a five month old child. Why do they cry? Uh, because they're sad usually, or something's wrong. Okay, so let's say something's wrong. Like what may be wrong with them? Maybe they're in pain, they're in discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe they're crying too because they want to get away from that pain or discomfort. Like why do you take why do you take an aspirin? To get away from the headache or the pain and discomfort, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why do you do the speed limit in your area? To stay safe pretty much and, and not cause any harm or pain or discomfort. Okay, right, and not and not maybe not to get a ticket. Like around here, you get a ticket, yeah. right? So when oh, you yeah. behave in ways, that, when you behave in ways to avoid something that's aversive, that's called negative reinforcement. Because all behavior occurs because of reinforcement. There's two types: negative and positive. Negative people behave just to avoid getting into some sort of trouble or something aversive, right? Um, positive reinforcement people behave to have something added right to get something for them so maybe the baby also cries because they wants the mom's attention right wants the mom's warmth right so we we tend to behave uh, these multiple contingencies are operating on our behavior so if you're driving maybe you're driving the speed limit because you want to stay safe you want to avoid uh uh you know uh getting a ticket, but also maybe you're enjoying the sights, right? Maybe you're driving slower because you want to take that stuff in. So there's multiple things operating on, on your behavior. Um, you might help, you know, somebody says, go, you know, clean your room. And like, you don't really want to clean your room. Maybe you just don't want to get in front trouble from your mom, you know, or maybe like, you know what, you don't want that, but also you value cleaning the room because it feels good. Or if you help somebody, you've learned that helping somebody is something good when you help them. It makes you feel good, right? You value that. And to think value becomes like a reinforcer. So as you're doing it and you're seeing that you're helping them, you're seeing them feel good about it, it makes you feel good. So that increases the likelihood that you will do that thing again, i.e. your behavior is getting in touch with reinforcement. And as you avoid getting into trouble or avoiding those versus, that increases the likelihood that you're going to avoid those things. So understanding those two pieces are very important, right? That holds the key to understanding why or why somebody's behaving and performing in a certain way interesting um and well broken down to understand it kind of does boil down to two things 
Um, and, and we learn as adults, we learn complex chains of behaviors that get our need met. We learn to delay gratification. Our behavior becomes rule governed. Like we know if we do this, this thing's going to happen in the future, you know? So we learn to avoid those kind of things, you know? So, uh, I mean, it gets more complex than that, but that's breaking it down into its basics. Yeah. Um, so what inspired you and your co-author to, to write this book? Yeah. So, um, um, first of all, Shout out to Dr. Nick Weatherly. Very cool guy. I mean, Nick really helped me a lot. He worked for Aubrey Daniels International, um, and I was fortunate to get a scholarship with them uh, many years ago And I uh, through a guy named Dr. Ken Wagner, and I met uh, Dr. Nick Weatherly there, and uh, Nick and I uh, did some work together in a school district, and we became friends. And as I mentioned, like there's a lot of scientists in the field, and there's people that are sciencey and people that can – disseminate well and nick to me seemed like the perfect niche of, mix of this very close to science but could communicate well you know could really express it in ways where people could understand it and digest it just a real good people person um so i have a lot of respect for uh for nick and uh yeah so we got to talking as we were kind of coming up with some coaching processes and he liked some of the things that i had to say and i liked some of the things that he had to say and uh had written a book and i the book quick wins and I hit him up and said, you know, Nick, uh, I think that we should write a book together on coaching. Cause we also both are passionate about coaching. I've been coaching for a long time. Nick has been coaching organizations. I was coaching, you know, fighters. I've been coaching in schools and I kind of label myself a coach. Uh, and then I said, I have a thought about this, you know, uh, deliberate coaching. There's something called deliberate practice. Well, this is an extension of deliberate practice, right? So deliberate practice is about building skills, uh, and maybe self-management, deliberate coaching is about deliberately helping somebody with precision to improve those skills and help them to generalize. So that was at the root of it. I'm like, I, we knew we had something that would help people. And we knew we have something that's going to improve fundamentally any type of coaching approach. What's your um, take on sort of, because obviously in America and over here in England, we have like a lot of labeling with kids um, with like ADD and ADHD. What's your sort of stance on that, like the pros and cons and so forth? Yeah, well, first of all, I work for a very, very cool company that's very family oriented. Uh, it's called Positive Behavior Supports Corporation. Um, you know, yo, go, go team PBS. Uh, very cool person. It's a team of behavior analysts and uh, we're all over the United States. Um, there's 2000 employees. And uh, one of the things they do is they focus on they go going into the homes, they go into the community, they go into schools. And they uh, support uh, children and adults uh, with, you know, behavior and performance improvement. So, um, you know, there's there can be an issue with labeling people. I mean, there's a pros and cons to it. Um, we just look really at the the clients and the function of their behavior. Going regardless of their regardless of what you label them, we're still going to come back to the science. You know, their behaviors occurring. What are they accessing as a result of that? What kind of replacement behavior can we teach them so that they do this and they get a better outcome, right? And one that's healthier and we can foster some sort of independence. So um, labeling doesn't do any of that. A lot of people focus on the label. Oh, they're ADHD. You know, they're, they're, they have bipolar. They have this and they have that. All right, that's great. Once you label them, then what? What are you going to do with that? You know, um, you know, a lot of times these folks get medicated. And I'm not saying there's not a, a time and a place for medication, but before medication should be tried, we really need to look at it behaviorally. What, what, what environmental adjustments can we make? What can we teach this person to do differently so they get better outcomes so they don't behave in these maladaptive ways? How can we teach them to function better in society? Um, so definitely want to apply those things first because like, you know, somebody that's been diagnosed ADHD, um, you know, man, maybe you just got them sitting down in a chair at school all day long and they don't want to sit anymore. I don't want to sit in a chair all day long, right? So part of that might be just programming movement into their activities. Or maybe it's like the teaching is just boring. Who wants to sit and listen to something boring? You're going to get antsy. We need to be engaged in those things. So helping that teacher to create a lesson that is more engaging becomes powerful. But instead, we look at the kid and say, well, He's ADHD because he won't sit still and listen. He just might just be bored stiff. Mm. Uh, so we don't know that. You have to look at the environment. And then we medicate these guys. 
and man, then they become lethargic. And I'm, and I'm, again, I'm not saying there's not genetic predisposition here, but we really want to look to modify the environment first and make sure that these guys have the right skills to get better outcomes. If you've done those things and they're in place, you've got a strong teacher, they're giving engaging work, they're engaging the, the student in the lesson, and they're still having problems with movement. Well, maybe we allow them to have a standing desk. You know, maybe we allow them to get up and move and walk around a little bit so they can get that that need met, right? Because they have to get that energy out. Maybe we program. I mean, in the, in the United States, they've taken out a, a lot of the fun things in school, like, you know, uh, like PE and music, this and that. And they're trying to like cram achievement down their throats and it's making school aversive to a lot of the kids, right? Instead of making school a place where they want to come, they're saying you need to learn and you can't force people to learn. You got to reinforce them with it. You got to make them help them want to learn. We call it establishing operations in science, create a want for them. So you need to do those things first. And if you've done those things and you're still having problems, and I've seen kids that are truly ADHD and that they can't sit, can't learn. They're all over the place. It's like their mind is racing. Uh, then, then, then by the way, these same kids that are ADHD that can't sit, they end up becoming what the diagnosis is oppositional defiant disorder. Have you ever heard that? No. Another label? ODD, right? Oppositional defiant disorder. It just kind of means like kids don't want to follow adult directions. Well, that gets shaped up a lot of times. If you have an adult always telling you to sit down and shut up, well, pretty soon adults become somebody you don't want to be around, right? So then you like, then how you've labeled them. And really, if you go back in their history, you're like, well, no wonder they don't want to listen to adults. Like adults have not treated them very well. They're always telling them to sit down and shut up. And uh, frankly, I'm the same way. If somebody treated me that way, well, now I'm going to be oppositional defiant. I'm not going to want to listen to you because I don't want anybody speaking to me that way. But Perhaps if we had arranged the environment better for that child, we wouldn't have to tell them that. Or maybe we had uh, changed the teacher's behavior a little bit. And not that teachers doing bad things, but they not may, might not know better. There's a way that you have to interact with people. You know, you need to focus on more what they're doing right, and less what they're doing wrong, and shape from there. Because, you know, we don't we don't expect somebody to learn. You know, to to run before they can crawl. We don't learn, uh, expect them to learn how to write until they learn the alphabet. And it's the same thing with behavior. You have to slowly improve behavior and that's how you can accelerate it by focusing on just a couple of behaviors at a time how do you um monitor progression or how have you monitored progression before with like behavior and stuff like that how's it done in america because obviously here it'd be like attendance or something like that uh great yeah so uh yeah so so here's the thing right that's a great question uh first of all people tend to just look at results right so if it was attendance and your attendance was low, we want to know what is the root cause of that? Why is your attendance low? Now, now it could be again that, hey, we have a bunch of new teachers in here. Teachers, you know, aren't providing engaging lessons that are meaningful to the kids. Or maybe it's the leaderships being like coercive with the teachers, right? Is that not that they can't do it, but they're not bringing out the best in them because they're pulling out the whip on them. They're forcing that. And that when you try to force people to do things, People will be compliant, but only when you're looking, right? And the most you're going to get is compliance. You have to reinforce them into it. You have to help them value the outcomes. If you do that and you help them behave in ways that allow them to reach those outcomes as positive reinforcement that they want, then they're going to do those things whether you're looking or not. And leaders don't understand the science a lot of these guys. Some people are just naturally good at it. You know, they're great leaders. Then you have people that use their positional authority to try to force people to do things. And they do it because they see it work for them. They don't understand the negative impact, the bad ripple effects that occur to, say, teach morale. If teacher morale's down, that's going to impact student achievement, student engagement, student learning. And that might hurt attendance, right? So we have to look at all these variables. What is at the root cause of attendance? We can't just focus. You can't focus on that learner if you have a lot of people not attending you have to go back and think there's a system there's a systemic issue here what is that so you got to get to the root cause of it yeah i mean it's mad when you think about how many variables there are and then having to try and work out what that can be it's obviously a lot of uh, time that needs to be to be implemented i guess to to try and find that out um, well th this is what this is what people in organizational behavior management specialize in coming in and doing an assessment first to figure out what is going on. Because if you just do something, if you say you need to attend more, you need to be in school. Well, 
What we know about the science is telling somebody to do something might get that behavior started, but it is insufficient for sustaining it. The only way they're going to sustain it is if you get them in touch with reinforcement. Being in school is a cool place to be. It engages me. I see that being here is going to lead to something important to me. But you have to make it more engaging in the moment for that student if you want to improve it. And that means if you're going to bring out the best in the students, who do you have to bring out the best then? Uh, the people around, basically, like the teachers and things like that. Yes. So. Yeah. And if you're going to bring out the best in them, you got to bring out the best in the leaders. If you're going to bring out the best in the teachers and leaders, it might be bring out the best in higher education. There's, so there's, there's this alignment all the way down that, le that leads to student achievement. A lot of times the poor teachers are getting blamed for it, you know, and they may not have the skills to actually engage the students because if you get too much theory telling, as I mentioned at the beginning, I can't tell a fighter how to fight and expect they're going to be able to get in their fight. Telling is insufficient for getting people to perform. It's not. It is the smallest piece of even telling and modeling. You have to tell them, give them instruction, model for them how to do it, and then they need lots of rehearsal with feedback in order to engage, to be able to engage in that skill. And then you need some coaching to help that skill to transfer into that natural environment. That's whether it's a, a teacher with a student, a, a instructional coach with a teacher or a leader with the teacher or somebody with a leader helping them to become better leaders. And in America, they've got some research that showed that one person, the school principal can impact student achievement by up to 25%. And so leading is very powerful. And I look at teachers as leaders, right? But they're leaders in the classroom. So helping everybody apply these same principles. So you have this alignment to bring out the best in student. This is what folks don't understand and what my what my book is about and what our company, uh, Positive Behavior Supports Corporation, does when they go into schools and, and this is what they do when they go into family homes and work with children. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things is to make sure that everyone's singing from the same page rather than right, and no, yeah. conflicting, you know, um, and everyone kind of believing in what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I, I think in England, applied behavior analysis might be getting a bad rap because people think it is, you know, about um, uh, you know, pigeons and rats, and like you don't have free choice and all this stuff, you know. And there's been some very well-known writers, and it drives me nuts. It makes me want to pull my hair out. <laughs> um, that written about it, they don't understand. A guy named Alfie Cohn uh, wrote a bunch of stuff about behaviorism, and I read them like. He, fundamentally does not understand it. But again, I look at it, if so many people fundamentally understand it, we as a field need to do a better job helping people to understand and to disseminate it. I'm working with some very cool people right now doing some virtual coaching. Uh, somebody named Dr. Kate Strutt uh, in Manchester, England. She's fantastic. Um, and they're working in schools. So, but we need more of the science across Europe, across the UK, because really it holds the secret to helping children achieve helping schools perform better because honestly this is my opinion but i can't think about what's more important than education i mean if you want to help people lead productive lives you want to keep them out of jail uh if you want to keep them off welfare and keep them out of poverty well it really starts in education giving them the skills to engage and become meaningful and productive uh citizens uh, uh, uh in the community so education is very important but we gotta we gotta really focus on bringing out the best in them yeah, I agree, because like, uh, when you're at school, you need those tools to be able to, when you leave, kind of be a part of society, integrate and, you know, potentially land a successful job or a successful career that you're happy and competent in, in achieving rather than the disengaged side of it where they leave, they ha they're uneducated and then they slip into the, the welfare side of society and so forth. Right. Uh, there you go, man. I mean, it's, it's for, very important. And, you know, there's a blame game that happens if the school fails, blame the school leader, you know, then, then the school leader is blaming the teacher and the teacher is blaming the parents. Um, what we need to do is all be aligned in our approach to wrap around the student. And uh, again, fundamentally to that is the science of human behavior. Yeah. I mean, it's strange because um, from, from my sort of outside perspective, when I've, uh, cause I've, taught a bit of sports in schools and things like that um i've always found that when i look at it from the outside it always kind of seems like the kid gets the the main share of the blame if that makes sense like it's your fault mm -hmm. you're you're the reason why like you're being naughty and it's kind of like we we fail to under 
a lot of people fail to understand the science and the environmental factors behind why they're behaving in those mannerisms yeah. and acting the way they're Remember acting. Remember, Mr. Miyagi said there's no bad student, only bad teacher, right? And I'm not going to say bad. What I will say is people who are not trained in the science of human behavior. And if they did, they would understand. They would start to become better observers of their own behavior and the impact of their behavior. And they will understand how to bring out the best in people. And this is differentiating. You have to differentiate your approach, you know, based on somebody's history, you know, doing something with you. If obviously to train you as a fighter, why I would still uh, use the same principles, I might have to do things a little bit differently based on what your needs are, based on, you know, do you have, is there a with your skill? Is it is that you have the skill, but you're not performing well? How can I improve that performance? And the approach is different, but the principles are all the same. Yeah, I was going to suggest that, well, suggest, say, how do you apply those principles within uh, the MMA, your MMA coaching? Are they, obviously, you're saying they're the same, but like, break it down a little bit for me. Yeah, so um, 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 one of the things, like, if I'm working with a fighter, I have to know, all right, I look, and I'm working with some of the very high-level fighters here, but let's say it's a new fighter. First of all, it's a new fighter. I know that I really have to develop their skills first. I cannot just throw them into the cage of the ring and expect they're going to perform. That's what happened to me. My first day, I walked into a gym, and uh, I was thrown into the ring with a professional fighter. He broke my nose. It's still broken to this day. And uh, I do feel like a lot that's what's happening in education. People are dropped into the school with like the ring to see if they'll sink or swim. And here we actually have up to 50% of the teachers leaving the field inside of five years. And we're, we have a shortage of over 100,000 teachers. So that's not the way you develop performance. You cannot do that. You have to develop the skills first. If they have the skills, then I have to get them to transfer. And like if I just taught you a skill, JB, taught you how to slip a punch, I'm not going to throw you in there with a professional fighter and say, okay, now go do it. Again, you're going to fall back on bad habits, maybe just trying to keep safe. But I might throw you in there and say, okay, I want you just to work the slip, right? Hands up and you have the skill already. And I might have the fighter just throw the right hand or the jab. So you're getting, and I might have them just do it at 50%. So now you're getting repetition under live conditions. So you, you begin to recognize the conditions when you need to slip, you begin to slip. And now I can shape that up a little bit with you by giving you some feedback. And if you start to slip, then you develop something that Albert Banderas calls self-efficacy, your belief in your ability to complete that task, which is going to increase the likelihood that you're completing it. And the scientist says that you're doing it more because you're being reinforced for doing it. Hey, I'm not getting hit. That's something important to me, right? Avoiding a punch. And then we slowly increase the speed of that right cross. And pretty soon you're doing it. Then we might fade in another punch. And then it's the one, two, then the one, two, three. And pretty soon you're able to deliberately apply this skill under live conditions. And it's really the same thing for any field, but that's a nice illustration about how it works. Can can these uh, same principles be applied in in like other fields as well, other than just school and sort of you using them in MMA? Can they be rounded in, in sort of all aspects of life and business and, and so forth? That, that is the beauty of the science. That there's no other science like this. Honestly, I, in my opinion, of course, when the when you have a hand hammer, they say the world looks like a nail, right? But the science can be applied anywhere. Doesn't matter. Anything that has to do with somebody doing something, if somebody is going to do something more, less, or differently, then that has to do with the science of human behavior, right? So we can help that. Doesn't matter. People behaving, we can help them behave better. Or if they're working with other people, we can help them to help other people perform better and reach outcomes that they desire, right? We want to engage. We want to do things to people. We want to do them with people, involve them. You know, hey, what are you trying to do? Okay, let's look at how we can help you reach those goals. So any field, anything. It's mad, isn't it, how these, these principles can be applied like that. It's just uh, it's kind of, it's, it seems so simple. Obviously, it's complicated to to an extent um i think it's people maybe not being educated enough that there is this science behind how we're all sort of acting and, and moving and how it can be applied um in in i assume like not a, a lengthy period of time it can be quite a quick process when everyone's singing from the same same hymn sheet yeah man i mean for sure there's no doubt about it if people in, in my opinion, it should be taught early in schools. Um, it should definitely be taught at the universities. And they don't have to have become behavior scientists, but understanding the basic principles it can be very powerful as a parent. Why your child is misbehaving, why they're behaving well, what to do when they're misbehaving, what to do when they're uh, 
behaving well, right? There's certain things that need to occur. If you want to see that behavior occur more like the good behavior, well, there's certain things as a parent that you can do. And if you don't want to see that misbehavior occur, well, there's certain things you should, you should do. And a lot of times, well-meaning people do the wrong thing because they were brought up that way or they see it work in the moment, but they don't understand the, 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 the consequences. Like if you use punishment a lot, you are not, you're going to get all sorts of bad things. There's all sorts of emotional reactions that occur. People are going to want to avoid you. If you've ever worked for a boss that has been like coercive in their approach, you don't want to be around them. You know, it doesn't bring out the best in you. Um, you know, if you work for fear of consequences, people become very nervous. They become like, they have tunnel vision, right? Um, because they're just, they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to get in trouble. And that is not the way you bring out the best in people. And that's not the way you, 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 train people to be healthy, productive citizens. If all you're doing is punishing them, this is what's being modeled to them. Then they go out in the world and they treat people the same way. So there's a better way and it's rooted in the science of human behavior. Do you think that's why there's uh, been sort of an increase in say anxiety uh, within children and, and even adults is like that kind of um, fear of punishment? Like if, sure. it, do you know what I mean? With the children in school, they're like kind of fear, fearful of doing poor because they've got yeah. this pressure and if they don't achieve, then they're getting told off or detentions and so forth. So they end up kind of building up this like anxious sort of feeling, which later on proceeds through life. Yeah, uh, 100%. You know, we're, we're setting up this stuff and like in America, we're like testing, testing, testing. And we're t and I'm not saying some sort of measurement is not important, but the measurement should just be used as feedback to the learner to let them know how they're progressing, right? And also as like a form of assessment to the teacher so they can redirect what they're doing to help the learner perform better, right? It should be used to punish. It should be used to teach. And that isn't and that is all. Um, so yeah, sure, it creates fear and anxiety for people. And it makes people not want to attend school. And people tend to yell and say, you need to do this or because. And man, again, you get you, you might win the battle, but you lose the war, so to speak. So there's definitely a better way. And, and like detention, for example, like actually over here, our company has developed something called the quick room. It's a replacement of uh, out of school suspension, in school suspension, exclusionary timeout, detention. And it's rooted in the science of human behavior. And we're getting like huge reductions. In one school, we saved 23,000 hours of time that children would have been sent out because we've just put in some basic principles that help them get back on task and back get back in the, the environment. But the main thing is that we want to put things in the environment that prevent kids from wanting to act out, right? Create an environment that's rich for learning, that engages them, that brings out the best in them, a climate, which is shared perception, a culture where people are helping each other, helping each other learn that they want to be in school, that they want to be in the class, that the teachers want to be there. But, you know, the, we have a lot of work to do. We really do. And it's good people doing a lot of the wrong things just because they don't know better. And there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good things, but let's recognize and help them recognize why that stuff is working. Let's hold them up as models for other people, schools that are being, uh, that are excelling leaders that are excelling teachers that are excelling. Let's hold them up as models. So other people can see what they're doing, not just saying that they're good, but specifically, what are they doing to be good? How are they reaching these outcomes? People have to understand to reach results, what behaviors they need to engage in. Because again, all results require somebody doing something more or less or differently. Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, it was a, a strange process because at school, I was like, for my GCSEs, like everyone was like pounding on how important they are. You know, you need to get really good grades because they're going to give you good, um, good career paths. Basically, if you've got good GCSEs here, you, you are going to get a good job. And I didn't really care. Like, I was carefree. I was a bit naughty at school. I was just like, whatever. Like, I'm lost in the yeah. system a little bit. Whereas uh, a couple of my friends, they were, like, stressed, worried. Um, that anxiety feeling was there. And I think to myself, like, I'm, when I was at school, we had a lot of PE and things like that. A lot of um, ways to relieve that, that stress and tension. Whereas I think in society and in schools nowadays, they've kind of taken away, like, the, the PE aspect and the sport. So these kids are dealing with all this stress and the system's kind of telling them you need to perform. So they're stressed and then they're not getting that relief like from sport and taking part and, and building groups, uh, friendship groups and so on because they're at home studying, revising and so forth. Yeah. 
Well, we want to have all those pieces and we want them to be engaged in what they're doing in school. And we don't want to cram it down their throat because they'll leave, you know, they'll quit. They're going to just like if we're cramming something down an employee's throat and they don't believe in it, they don't think it's going to be helpful. They'll end up leaving, right? When it becomes so aversive that whatever you're working for, the aversion is more than that. You'll get flight. People will escape. So we have to create, I mean, think about it. If we, if we made school, you know, engaging. We had like lots of, uh, uh, you know, when you learn history, if you learn history and we have, we have the, the technology and you, you learned about, you know, this for over here, maybe the civil war, but you were in it in virtual reality. How much would you learn? It would be engaging you with all of this kind of cool stimulus. And we could do that. You know, that it could be so much funner, right. Engaging where people are learning rather than just sitting and having to pick up in the book and read it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with reading books. Some people love reading. They're engaged in that, but some people don't do it. So if we allow people different outlets or different approaches to engaging them in their learning, well, they're going to learn more. I think that's it as well, understanding different learning styles. Like some people are visual, some people are doing, and uh, I can't remember the Mm. third one. Um, I was more of a a doing learner. So if you sat me down and made me like look at a whiteboard or whatever, I was just like fiddling around, messing about, didn't really care. Whereas if it was like something where we had to get up and partake in tasks and, and I was like felt more engaged, I've learned so much better, performed so much better, was a lot happier and didn't get sent out of class or get detention. So it's a correlation. Everybody, that's the whole trick is engaging people in it. No matter what, people, if they're going to get good at something, they do no matter what have to do it. You have to engage in those behaviors in order to create habits. That, that is very important. But how you engage people, there's different ways to do it. And that's what you're coming back to. What do I prefer doing? How do I prefer learning? It's just what, what is your reinforcers? Mm. What um, sort of is put in place for children that need support in classrooms and things like that? Do you have like a teaching assistant? Um, you know, what what's sort of yeah. put there for them? So one of the things are, that's what like maybe a behavior analyst would do. So you come in, let's say a child was acting out in the class and this is where like I would get caught up. I might be brought in to look at the child. This is back when I was doing this. Um, but, but I couldn't look at the child without looking at the environment, right? So, so there's simple things that should be going on in the classroom that reduce the likelihood children are going to act out. For example, uh, first of all, there's a lesson plan. Right. And then so the lesson plan is given at the child's skill level or maybe just a little bit beyond. Right. Because if you get if you're trying to teach somebody and it's nowhere close to their current learning level, well, you can't learn like all right now I'm, I'm so far away from math. You can sit me out down, and expect me to do trigonometry. Yes, I'm going to act out because I can't do it. You know, so you have to look at those basic things. Um, are there basic routines and procedures? People know where to come in, where to sit how they should speak, where they hand in their papers. Is the teacher focusing more on recognizing what's going right or more on what's going wrong, right? So you will get the behavior that you focus on most. So we actually measure that. That stuff's measurable. How many times you are interacting positively with a child uh, in ratio to how many times you are correcting misbehavior and how you're correcting misbehavior. If you're doing it in a way that's nasty or coercive, well, you're going to get bad behavior with that eventually, you know? And again, you're going to get at most people are stifled doing just enough to get by, but they're doing it in fear from you. So I look at those things in the environment at first, because if we're going to change that child's behavior, whose behavior are we actually trying to change? The leaders basically, um, and, and the environment around them, you know? Yeah. Right. We can't, if, if all, if telling people what to do was sufficient, I would say you need to sit down and learn. That would be it. I would tell the teacher, you need to go in your classroom and teach. I would tell the leader, you need to lead better. Do this, that, and the other. It's not. You Telling people does not get people to do things. They might start behaving that way, but unless they do it long enough, create a habit, and get in touch with some sort of positive outcome for doing it, they're never going to sustain it. So people need to understand those pieces of it. Um, so there's obviously a rise in like social, emotional, mental health concerns in children. Um, do you know like what supports been put in on the ground level for them? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I'm a, I'm a behaviorist. Uh, so I'd mentioned earlier, there's something called acceptance commitment therapy. I, I wrote that uh, article about it on fear and anxiety. This is a very important approach because it's, it, while it's rooted in some very deep science, behavioral science, um, it, there's an approach 
that makes it simple and palatable for everybody. So essentially what it says is that it helps, and this would be for you or an adult, anybody, anybody else, but for working with children, helps children better align their behaviors with the outcomes they want, right? So first of all, we say, what is it that you value? Who and what do you value? I value my mom. I value my dad. I value this sport. Um, I value learning, hopefully. Um, you know, I value this, that, and the other. Okay. What shows up with the, within you, right? What, what yucky things kind of show up, to pull on Dr. Polk's term, um, that get in the way of you accessing those things? Well, I get mad. I, I get afraid. I feel like I can't do it, you know? And okay, when those things show up within you, what do you do? Uh, well, I yell, I scream, I don't do my homework, you know, I, I uh, avoid, you know, if you're an adult, you might drink, right? You do drugs. All right. Do those behaviors lead you toward or away from what you value? So, so you see what's going on here is you're starting to discriminate between your private events, right? These behaviors that only you can observe. And your, the overt behaviors, behaviors that other people can observe. So when, when you can discriminate that, then we say, all right, what behaviors can you engage in that will lead you towards who and what you value? And as you become, become a better observer of your own behaviors and the behaviors that lead you towards or away from your behaviors, you will start to become less focused on getting stuck up in your mind on these things that are going on in your mind and more focused on the behaviors that are going to lead you towards these things in these people that you value. Because this is what's important. And if that sounds familiar, it's very close to mindfulness. Because what happens is we get stuck in a loop in our brain where the whole thing is like if you're unhappy about something, all right, what and you want to get close to somebody, you want to achieve better on the test, you want to do this, that, and the other. What behaviors do you need to engage in that are going to lead you to achieving that outcome? So as simple as that. And once you do that enough, you stop getting caught in your own head and you start getting caught or focused on the behaviors that are going to get those outcomes for you. Because if you want those outcomes, you have to do something more or less or differently. And when you understand the behaviors that you're engaging in, like arguing with your spouse or your girlfriend or yelling, like that's a bad behavior. And does that bring you closer to them or farther from them? No. All right. What, what should you do instead? You know, I should talk to them. We should problem solve together, you know. Okay, what shows up inside you that makes you argue? Well, I get mad. I get angry. Okay, when you get mad or angry, what should you be doing instead? And getting towards those behaviors, that's the key. It's still coming back to those behaviors regardless of what you feel, but understanding that's a private event and how that impacts your behaviors. Acceptance commitment therapy, powerful, and I'm applying it in schools right now. Talk to me a little bit more about the uh, the company that you're you're working with. Obviously, you're wearing their top, I believe. Yeah, Positive Behavior Support Corporation. So the owner, uh, Dr. Mike Nolan, very cool guy. Um, he started this company, I think, about ten years ago, and uh, they primarily were focusing on the clinical aspect. Again, going into homes, uh, group homes, also working like maybe one on one with kids. Um, so they're doing like a lot of good work. It's a completely, it's a company that's completely applies behavior analytic approaches. And uh, when they brought me in, um, I am working uh, uh, with my colleague Anika Costa. Um, we go into schools and we support. Uh, we we give trainings rooted in the science, right? What we call behavior skills trainings, where people get instruction, modeling, rehearsal, feedback. We employ something called cooperative learning, where they're engaged in that rehearsal, right? We have like adults engage with each other, and then we go into schools and we work with what because we know the training is not going to get the stick. We have to go into schools and we have to provide some coaching. So we work with the leaders, we work with their coaches, so they can work with the teachers, so the teachers can then work with the students and this allows us to create sustainability so the company has been really marketing expanding this to let schools know that we're available to work with them whether it's for training and coaching or clinical needs or even doing virtual coaching so we can support perform behavior performance and school improvement so yeah that that's what they're doing and what i love about the company is like they're family first you know it's like if you're if you had somebody sick in your family they said go take care of your family and you think about that as an employee what's that do for you you know, it, good, yeah. It, yeah, it makes you feel good and it makes you want to go above and beyond and engage more. So, you know, the, the CCO, uh, Tara Cessna, she's always saying, you know, very cool things, getting lots of positive feedback. I love that, you know, but it also, you know, and again, working with people that value the same thing. Uh, Anika and I just really love helping teachers. Honestly, if I was wealthy, uh, which maybe one day I'm doing MMA science, maybe this is for a, 
a whole different thing, but we're bringing the science uh, to mixed martial arts. We're creating a, a belt rigging system. So if that were to bring in a, a lot of money, uh, and it probably will, I honestly would go to schools and speak and do coaching for free because I really like, I feel bad for the teachers and I feel bad for the, the school leaders. I mean, they're, they're being given you know, a, a tough gig. We have teachers coming in with no training and they're learning on the job and that's hurting the, the students, you know, and that's hurting the leaders and it's hurting the community. So I would do it for free, man. I would love to, I would love to get political and go up and verbally smack some politicians around. I, I would do it appropriately, but really I, I say smack them, but I want to give them a smack of science. What I want to do is see how we can get science up from the, the policy holders down through higher education, down through the States uh, policymakers rather down to the states and so this stuff trickles down so we're doing things differently because there's certainly a lot of waste there's a lot of heartache there's a lot of people that aren't meeting their potential and the science could help that so uh, you know we're doing that in the company with the folks that we're working with and I would I would honestly do it for free if I could where can people find your book if they want to get a copy of it I appreciate that, man. Uh, so uh, Learning Science International is the uh, publisher, but also it's available on Amazon.com. Um, so they can go check it out there. Uh, and if they're interested in uh, you know, uh, uh, connecting with me, I'm on LinkedIn, um, Paul uh, Gavoni, EDD. Uh, please, I invite that. <laughs> you know, Connect with me on uh, uh, Facebook, Paul F. Gavoni, or I have my mixed martial arts side, which is Pauly Gloves. Instagram, Dr. Polly Gloves, uh, uh, Twitter, Dr. Polly Gloves. Uh, and if you want to find out more about our company, www.teampbs.com, uh, you know, um, we'd love to hear from you. And I'm also, if you're in, in the UK, I'm available for a deliberate coaching. You know, uh, we'll get on and do exactly what we're doing here. And if, whether you're in a business or a school or wherever, um, you can learn about using the science of human behavior to improve outcomes. Perfect. Is there anything else you'd like to add at all? No, man. I appreciate it. I really, those were great questions. I think they were very important questions, and it was great talking with JB. No, thank you for uh, for coming on. I'll chat to you for a couple of minutes off stream, if that's all right, and um, sure. we'll wrap this up, if you like. I'll put the, the in the description the links and so forth that you've mentioned. Um, so, yeah, if anyone wants to get a copy of your book and check out what you're doing and make contact, it'll be in the description below. Take care, guys.